Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. I used to love that show, Deal or No Deal. Did anybody watch that show back in the day? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, I, I loved it was an adrenaline rush to pick your case and then try to make a, a deal to get another case. But I'm positive that I would have never been any good at this game because I played the electronic version at Dave and & Buster's and every time I, I fail miserably. I am a horrible deal maker. Not just evidenced by uh, playing deal or no deal, but evidenced by multiple stories and situations in my life. I usually uh, am too gullible. I, I, I take the, the quick part of the deal, and I usually get the raw side of the stick, the, the short side of the stick. It usually never works out for me. Uh, the most, uh, one of the funniest ones, or the most prominent one in my mind, is when I was on the bus as a first grader. I was a bus riding kid. Anybody ride the bus as a kid? Yeah? We live too close to the school now, so we can't ride the bus, so I'm really sad that my kids are going to miss out on that experience, because that's where I completely lost all my innocence in life. I learned everything, <laughs> everything my mom wanted me to never know, I learned on the bus. And I lived in a small county, population-wise, but a large county mass-wise. And so there wasn't a lot of bus. There wasn't a lot of people, so there wasn't a lot of buses. So uh, from where I lived to get to the school was a 45-minute to an hour drive twice a day. So I was on the bus for a long time. And because there wasn't a lot of people, but everybody was so spread out, There was a lot of ages on that bus. So it was, I was in kindergarten, first grade, and I distinctly remember being on a school bus with sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, which as you, I'm sure you can imagine, sixth, seventh, eighth graders with kindergartners on a 45 minute drive with an adult who really can't be distraction is a recipe for great stuff, right? I remember as a first grader looking out and these older kids just had some of the coolest stuff. As a first grader, I I didn't have that stuff, and I wanted that stuff. There was this one guy I remember in particular. His name was John, and he could draw these incredible pictures. He drew pictures of ninjas and warriors and tanks and all kinds of cool stuff, and I wanted one, but I had nothing to offer. But one day, I just, I got up the courage. I said, hey, John, can I get one of those pictures? And he said, sure. What are you going to give me for it? And again, I'm a first grader. I have nothing to give, and so I just said, "I, I don't know. I don't have anything. He goes... How about your lunch? And in my first grade mind, I was like, yeah, that's awesome. So I gave him my lunch, but he said, no, 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 no. This picture's worth more than one day's lunch. I'm going to need two days of lunch. And again, in first grade, I'm like, easy, right? So I give him two days of lunch. And then in my first grade brain, I think, I'm carrying tons of cash to make deals every day. So I started wheeling and dealing on the bus. I was trading string cheese for those little things that come out of the quarter machines. Juice boxes for dumb little trinket toys you get from the dollar store. I'm trading, wheeling and dealing all the time. And I'm sure my teachers were getting a clue because some days I'd show up with a full lunch, some days no lunch, some days things missing half a lunch. But, but it never escalated to the point of anybody saying something until the final deal. And the final deal, there was this kid on the bus who had one of those 80s electronic handheld games. You guys know what these are, right? You you remember these? These are pre-Game Boy, okay? These are like 15, 20 bucks at like KB Toys or uh, Kmart, huh? Radio Shack. I mean, they were awesome. 
until you got to play on something cooler and then they were not. But I wanted this so bad. My mom didn't give me one. There's a kid on the bus who had one. And I started wheeling and dealing with this guy. What's it going to take to get this? So we go back and forth. He was driving a hard bargain and he said, two weeks of lunch. I was like, that's easy. I'm going to get this cool thing. So I got this cool thing and I didn't even make it a week into this where one day I was at the lunch table crying because I was starving, right? (laughs) And the teacher comes up and asks, what's wrong with you? And what's going on? Why don't you have lunch? And they started going back and forth and I didn't have an answer. I was like, I don't know. Maybe my mom forgot. Sometimes she forgets. You're totally throwing her under the bus, right? And they call in my parents. Now at this point, I'm like, no, this is not gonna end well. And everyone's going around. I'm sure the teachers were like, does this family, do they have a need that they're just not expressing or something? Anyways, we're in there and they're like, where's your lunch going? I was like, I'm trading it for toys and pictures and stuff on the bus. And my mom was so proud. No, (laughs) she was not happy. So much so that uh, she made me give back the handheld electronic game. I was like, mom, that cost me like four sandwiches, three string cheese, two bags of tomato uh, Cheetos and a couple juice boxes. Don't take that back. But she made me give it back and it was awful. And I learned that day that I'm a horrible deal maker and I still try to make deals to this day and usually end up on the bad side of the deal. You know, today we continue our sermon series called Real ID. In the past two weeks, We've looked at two of the three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. And in those temptations, the devil tempts Jesus to do an act that I would say largely benefits Jesus himself. But in this third temptation, the devil tempts Jesus with a deal. And this, by all accounts, is actually, I think, a really, really good deal. Because it not only benefits Jesus, but it would benefit all of humanity. Yet Jesus, in spite of that, chooses not to make the deal. But before we get to the deal, before we get to this third temptation, let's review where we've been. Dr. Jim has been saying over the past couple weeks that in an age of radical individuality, there are almost as many ways in which we can define ourselves and each other as there are people to be defined right? The world tries to define us in a thousand ways, but God defines us in just one. We're his beloved children with whom he's well-pleased. And once we're defined by God, nothing else can ever incorrectly identify us again. And our resolved proclamation together has been over the past couple weeks, I am who the I am says I am. In the first week of this series, we took a look at Jesus's baptism, right? And in that moment, in that place, we discovered that at his baptism, in his baptism, Jesus was publicly marked with his real identity. The father came down, or the voice of the father came out, and Jesus's real ID for all to hear was that he was the beloved son of the heavenly father. And we talked about what that meant, And what that means for us when we choose to follow Jesus, when we're baptized, that in our baptism, something miraculous happens. In your baptism, in my baptism, we are publicly marked with our real ID. And our real ID is that we're beloved children, sons and daughters of the heavenly father. And there is no other identity than your real ID in Christ once you've chosen to follow Christ. And so we see in the story that as soon as Jesus is baptized, 
publicly marked for all to hear that he is the son of the most high God, the heavenly father. Then he goes into the desert. Remember the next chapter, he goes into the desert and immediately following a 40 day fast, he's attacked by the enemy, the devil, Satan, who attempts to supplant Jesus's real ID. He attempts to get him to question his ID, to to be confused about who he is. And now the first two temptations, they begin with Satan saying, if you are the son of God. I was reading over that and over that all this week, and it caused me to stumble upon this question that I've never asked before. Maybe, maybe you have, I don't know. But I, I found this question in my study and my praying, and my question was this. Did Satan know who Jesus really was? See, we read the story in hindsight and all the dots are connected and all the puzzle pieces are together. But if you read it with fresh eyes, if you read it with a fresh perspective, you, you, I question, and maybe you will too as you read it, did Satan know who Jesus was? Did he really know that he was the Logos, the third person of the Trinity? Now, if I had to put money on it, I would say no. I'm not saying that's the biblical truth. You can have your perspective. I can have mine. But as I read the story, I think it's a no. But I think he had a clue. But I think what this all led me to is an important reminder for us. The enemy is not God. And he is not a God. He's an angelic being. He's powerful, but he's not all powerful. He knows a lot, but he's not all knowing. He might be able to predict what's going to happen, but he does not know the future. Too often, I think we ascribe God-like powers to the enemy, to Satan. And the truth is, is that's not the case. I don't think he knows the thoughts of the Father. And I don't think he knew what God's plan for Jesus was. Unless God shared it with him, which I doubt that he did. And so here Jesus shows up, And he's on earth. And I'm questioning, does Satan really know who this guy is and what he's going to do? Now, you might argue and say, well, come on, Chris. The Christmas story. Of course, Satan would have seen that and said, something big is happening here, right? And and I, I grant you that, right? Angels announced his birth to shepherds, but they still announced his birth, right? And so that's a big deal. So, so maybe Satan had a clue that this guy, Jesus, was different. But think about it. He was then born in a cave. Now, again, you read that and you're like, but it was a humble beginning and it's just, it's an awesome story the way that God did it. Yes, but in the moment, if you're the, the enemy looking at this going, who's this guy now born in a cave? And not only that, but the guy lives a relatively quiet life for 30 years. So if, if Satan's kind of watching him, maybe he's got somebody kind of watching him, got to keeping an eye on him. Jesus does nothing, nothing of note, nothing that ends up in scripture, nothing that gets him any fame or notoriety to our knowledge until his baptism, his coronation, if you will, right? Now, The spirit descends like a dove and a voice from heaven says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Now I think Satan goes, oh no, right? Who 
is this guy, the son of God. See, I think this explains while after Jesus' fast in the desert, that Satan comes at him with a no-holds-barred attack. I mean, he throws at him these three temptations that no human could have withstood. He throws pleasure at him, prominence at him, and power at him. I mean, this is like a cage match, the battle of the century. Satan holds nothing back in his attack of Jesus. He comes at him with everything because he now knows who this guy is. He doesn't know what the future holds, but he can see that God is doing something in Jesus' life. There's something special about this person, Jesus. And so he begins the attack. And church, this is a good reminder to us that when we choose to follow Christ, when we have incredible moments in the presence of God, when we take steps in our discipleship journey, we should expect that the enemy takes note of that, that he sees it and he goes, God is doing something in this person. Maybe I should attack this person. Students, I think this is especially true when you have a thing like D-Now last weekend. You have an incredible time. Some of you made decisions to follow Jesus, to get baptized. Some of you made decisions to lead within your group. Some of you take large steps in your discipleship journey. There's this, we call it being on fire or a spiritual high that can happen after these weekends. And then as the week progresses, I imagine this is true for some of you, that temptations may became stronger or things were more difficult or you felt like you're being attacked or things were harder. And our temptation is to think that when that happens, it's evidence that what God did isn't real. Did you catch that? When we have an incredible moment with God, and then we turn from that moment and something difficult happens, we encounter a temptation or we fall to temptation. It comes on stronger than it's ever been before. When something hard or difficult happens, our temptation is to say, well, what happened with God? It can't be true. It can't be real because look what I'm facing. But in fact, the exact opposite is the truth. Jesus has this incredible counter with the Father. It's his coronation ceremony. Everyone knows who it is. The Father infirms him in front of everybody. And you think he'd walk out and be on high. Everything would go great. But instead, the enemy takes that as note and says, I got to attack that guy. And the same is true for us. When you're in these moments, when you decide to make a move for Jesus, when you take big steps in your discipleship journey and you face adversity, attack, temptation, Use that as evidence. Take note of that as evidence that what God did was real, was true. And this is evidence that the enemy doesn't want that to come to fruition, right? And that's what happens to Jesus. He has this incredible moment. He turns from it and faces these temptations. And knowing that that is true for Jesus and it's true for you, let's look at how Jesus handles this third temptation, this power temptation where Satan is going to attempt to make a deal with Jesus that would lead Jesus to ground his identity and power. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, if you want to turn in your Bibles there now. And that's where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Matthew chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 8. It'll be on the screen too if you want to follow along. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attempted, attended to him. Why did the devil choose power, this temptation to come at Jesus with? Have you ever asked yourself that? Think about it. I know I said the devil's not all-knowing and he's not all-powerful, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't know a lot and that he's not powerful. And that one of his powers, one of his abilities, is to sense our weaknesses, our insecurities, our doubts, our fears, and then to tempt us or to cause us to question in those areas. Listen, I can promise you Satan doesn't waste time tempting us with things that aren't going to lure us in. I'm going to confess this morning. I've never been tempted to rob a bank. Never been tempted to join a gang. These things are not alluring to me. So Satan's never presented them as temptations. I have plenty of other insecurities, fears, doubt, things that I fight and struggle and battle with that Satan is tempted with me with all the time. But Satan's not like throwing temptations at the wall saying, oh, that one didn't stick up. That one didn't stick. Let's try this one. Let's try this one, right? Satan has some power. The enemy has some power to sense where our weaknesses are, where our fears, our insecurities, our doubts are. So think about it. Why did he come at Jesus with this temptation? Now, for those of you who, who under, um, under-prioritize Jesus as humanity, this might make you a little squeamish, what I'm about to say. If for you, Jesus is more deity than he is humanity, then then you might struggle with what I'm about to say. But we firmly believe that, that Jesus was fully God and fully human, that he had the full experience of humanity while still being divinity. But I would say in this story, all stories, but this one in particular, be careful not to over-spiritualize Jesus. Be careful not to remove his humanity from him. Because I think the precondition for the temptation, this third excuse me, this third temptation, I think the precondition was success. I think the precondition here for Jesus' third temptation is success. Now, I can't prove this. Nobody can. But I think Jesus is at a low point. He's weak and he's tired and he's being attacked. And I wonder if he began to contemplate all that was ahead of him. The task that the Father had called him to, to rescue humanity, And I wonder if he began to question if he could do it. Could he make it happen? Could he pull it off? Could he withstand the rejection, the hate? Could he withstand the crucifixion? I wondered if he began to doubt whether or not his humanity would be able to pull through this. If Jesus was fully human, then he surely did. Because any human will tell you we feel these same things, especially coming up against a huge task, right? And here comes the devil with a sweet deal to guarantee Jesus' success. Jesus' success is that all the kingdoms of the world would bow before him, that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, that, that the devil would be defeated and all would know the name of Jesus. 
The devil offers him that deal right here. It's a guaranteed means to that end. And also catch what's different about this temptation. The first two temptations, Satan comes in and he says, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, jump from this high point on this temple. But in this temptation, that's missing. I wonder why. Perhaps it is that Satan is no longer speaking to an insecurity or a fear or a doubt, but now he's speaking to a sense of entitlement. Like, okay, since you are the son of God, here's what you're entitled to. All the kingdoms of the world. And here is a quick way to get it. In this third temptation, he doesn't use the, if you are the son of God. I think Satan is trying to use Jesus's identity as a son of God to make him feel entitled to say, well, since you're the son of God, here's what you're after. Come and take it. Church, sometimes the enemy tempts us by causing us to question or to doubt. But sometimes temptation comes in the sense of entitlement. Well, we begin to think, I am this person. I am a son or daughter of God. I'm entitled to this. I am right. I know the way, the truth, and life. Or I know God's going to forgive me. And our entitlement can get us in just as much trouble as our insecurity or our doubt or our questioning our identity. Now listen, while Jesus, he is the son of God, he's entitled to all those kingdoms. This is not the way that he wants to get there. The ends is right, perhaps, but the means is wrong. This is Jesus using power, shaking hands with the devil, shaking hands with power in order to accomplish his plans. This would be Jesus choosing to bypass the hard work of serving, loving, giving, investing, waiting, hurting, and instead kissing the ring of power and getting what he wants, using positional authority to accomplish God's will as opposed to God's way of accomplishing God's will. But Jesus rejects this, and he rejects it in a powerful, powerful way. I had a good friend uh, growing up who was a borderline kleptomaniac. You know what kleptomaniac is? Someone who, it's a mental disorder that, uh, that you just feel the need to steal all the time. Sometimes things of value, sometimes things of no value, but it's a real thing. And, and I legit, I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not being facetious. I, he was borderline kleptomaniac. And he stole a lot of things all the time. I mean, I'm just like, he would come in your house and you'd be like, where's my shoes? Oh, hey, buddy, those are nice shoes. Those aren't yours, right? And, he, and he'd always be apologetic. But, but, uh, and, and sometimes he would invite me to steal with him. And my moral compass was strong enough that I was able to decline almost every time. <laughs> See, you know, you know, when the ends is right, you just sometimes, you know, you just, you're tempted. So we're building this fort. We got our backyards are big enough and nice enough. There's enough trees and we want to build a fort, but we didn't have the construction supplies, but we grew up in a, in a fast growing community. And so there was a construction site on the, on the corner of every street. And so my friend, 
pitched the idea that what if we just went to those construction sites and stole the scraps out of the dumpster? I'm like, that's not even stealing. That's trash, right? So we went and we got the scraps. But the problem is you can't build a real fort with scraps, right? You need some nicer pieces. So then he kind of said, well, what if we get the stuff that's laying near the dumpster, right? Because, you know, you're like, it's not in the dumpster, but it's next to the dumpster. So it's probably going to go in the dumpster, right? And I'm like, that's not a bad, I, let's do it, right? So we go, we get those things. We're always doing this like at 5, 6, 7, 8 p.m., 9, 10 p.m., you know, when anyone could catch us. We'd wear, yeah, it was a bad, it was bad, it was bad. <laughs> we wore all black, uh, ski mat, you know, it was awful. But anyways, so we did this. Um, but we weren't stealing, right? I mean, you know, that was just, you know, it was just fun. Uh, so anyways, then one day we needed a ladder. We didn't have a ladder. But this one construction site had built a ladder out of scraps. And it was laying on the ground. And so, it was, so he said, well, it's scrap wood that I don't think they're using any longer. So let's grab it. And I was like, scrap wood laying on the ground? Yeah, that works. So we grabbed the ladder, right? Then one day we're over there. And he's like, we need a sawzall. I was like, all right, sawzall. He's like, there's one in this unlocked truck. It's lunchtime, but the truck is next to the dumpster. <laughs> I was like, my moral compass was like, ding, 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 ding. Uh, that's going to be a no for me, right? It was clear, that clearly crossed the line for me. We had moved from like sort of maybe kind of stealing, we could get away with it to like, Larceny, right? And I clearly knew that, that I would get in trouble for that, right? My sense is that most of us read this last temptation of Jesus and we think to ourselves, clearly Jesus is tempted by this. Worship the devil? Come on. Jesus would never. And so I think we're prone to underestimate how tempting this temptation would have been to Jesus. Let, let's look at it again. Matthew 4, 8, all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Now this obviously, as we think of it, this crosses a line for Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus, he is God. How can he worship him? There's, there's no way, right? Worshiping Satan, come on, this, this had to be the easiest of all the temptations for Jesus to say no to. But I don't think we fully appreciate or fully maybe understand what's happening here. Let's break it down. The word worship in Greek, prosakonesis, comes from the root word prosakonal. It literally means to kiss the ground when prostrating before a superior. Many commentators and scholars agree that Satan is not asking Jesus to worship him as a god but to acknowledge him as an overlord, to submit to him as the prince of the world, to kiss the ring, as it were, to kiss the ground he stands on. I mean, think about it. Surely Satan knows he's not going to get Jesus to worship him as God. That's completely illogical. Satan knows he's not God. He, he probably figured out that Jesus is God. He's not, it just doesn't make sense to look at this and say he wanted him to worship him as a God. But to kiss his ring of power, to bow before him, 
and acknowledge him as the overlord? That makes a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? You see, think about it. Scripture clearly teaches and indicates that Satan, at least for the time being, is the prince of this world. That he is the God of this age. And that this world is under his control. Why would this be so tempting, might you ask? If Satan gives all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus and all their splendor, does it not stand to reason that all the evil that would have happened for almost the last 2,000 years from that moment to now would have ceased to exist? If Jesus simply kisses the ring, all the kingdoms of the world are now in his hands. No more crusades. No more black plague. No more holocaust. No COVID-19. No slavery. No human trafficking. No sex slavery. No abortion. No death penalty. No hunger. No poverty. No orphans. No terrorism. No school shootings. As I read this, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but, but I don't think so. If Jesus makes this deal, it's all over. All the kingdoms are his. Satan gives control of this world and all their kingdoms to Jesus. And Jesus, simply by bowing before Satan, pledging his allegiance to acknowledge him as overlord, Jesus saves and stops all the evils that are to come. Nobody in history would ever know except for the Father. And come on, Jesus would know that it was a game. He's just, he's just satisfying this tyrant. He doesn't really believe what he's done. He's just making a deal because the ends is so good. Were it you in this situation, were it me, would you not look at this deal and go, that's a really good deal? I mean, seriously, that's a really good deal. You, you might not be tempted to think this, but I might be tempted to think this is a, this is a God deal. Because this is God's will. That these things would come under Jesus' control. That everyone, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus, this gets us there a lot faster and cuts out a lot of the pain and the hurt and the hate that would happen in between. Yet with all this in mind, Jesus still chooses to reject power as an identity to wear. He chooses to reject power as a means to his end. I could say more on this, but when I read this in a commentary this week, I thought this sums it up perfectly. The danger is greatest when the ends sanctify the means. Nowhere is homage to Satan more common than in connection with sacred causes, the interest of truth, righteousness, and God. Nothing tests purity of motive so thoroughly as temptations of this class. Christ was proof against them. But here's the thing. The church of Jesus Christ has been getting into, into bed with positional 
power, cultural power, governmental power, popular power. Been getting into bed with power for almost as long as it has existed. Because there's always a good reason. Because it's always worth it. Because there's some cause or some end that makes it okay. And to my thinking, maybe not to you, but to my thinking, this story in a new light has told me that Jesus played the ultimate trump card here. There is no ends justify the means when it comes to accomplishing the will of the Father. There is no holding your nose and going along with it because it's worth it. There's no kissing the ring of power to accomplish the good thing that you think God wants to accomplish. If Jesus, come on, chose to reject that, then surely, surely it should teach us that power is not a game that sons and daughters of the heavenly father want to play. Now, candidly, I've made this deal personally Maybe you have to, and I'm not saying I'm strong enough that I'll never make it again, but I walk away from this story with new conviction and brokenness about how easy and often it is that I wear power as an identity. If you want to look at some other places, we don't have time this morning, but I think in Matthew 16, Jesus teaches what he did to Peter. Peter, he's telling Peter and the guys that he's going to go die. Peter says, not on my watch. Jesus says, get thee behind me. If you're going to study something this week, study that, Matthew 16, or talk about it in your IGs. And then Jesus does it again in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. Here's this moment where we see Jesus doesn't want to do what the Father has him to do. And then an opportunity arises for him not to do it. Peter pulls out a sword, is ready to start a revolution. And Jesus says, Peter, do you not know that I have 12 legions of angels at my beck and call. I could use power if I wanted to use power to get out of this. Study that this week. Talk about it in your IGs. But I can almost hear some of you come back at me. And so let me just state the obvious. We live in the most powerful city in the world. And if we're honest, some of us were drawn here by its power. If I'm honest, I was drawn here by the allure of the idea if we could change this place, we could change the world. Now granted, we want to use that power for good. And let me say, power, like pleasure, like prominence, like we talked about in previous weeks, it's not inherently bad, right? Power is a neutral entity that can be used for good or for evil. Cue Uncle Ben, Spider-Man's uncle, right? With much power, with much power comes much, right? You can use power to a good end. But I think that the story here and all the stories of Jesus, the way that Jesus lives his life, I think it cautions us against that tale, at least to use it in a positional, authoritarian, flexing your muscle, using it to lord over someone sort of way. Because I think a couple things. One, I think power is intoxicating. I think when you start playing the power game, it goes right to your head and right to your heart. And before you know it, you're wearing power as an identity. I think also power is a, a weak change agent. Can you cause something to change using power? Yes. Are there times where power is necessary? It's necessary to flex the power muscle in order to get something done, to rescue someone, to change the situation? Yes. But more times than not, it is a weak change agent. You can force your kid to do something, but 
Is it really going to change their head and their heart, right? We can force a country to come in line using the threat of violence, but is that really going to change the heart of that country? Power's a weak change agent. And power, it's not what made this country or this city great, in my opinion. In my opinion, the muscle that we flex when we're being our greatest and doing our greatest work it is the muscle of generosity and compassion. I've been reading Bono's uh, memoir. Has anybody read it? Surrender. Holy cow, it's amazing. And the, uh, the audiobook version is incredible. But he tells the story of the one campaign in the early 2000s uh, where him and George W. Bush uh, worked together to end debt, and he also did it with Bill Clinton, and then to the, the AIDS initiative and some of the things that the United States was a part of. That, that, that was change. I think when we serve people, I think when this powerful city serves people with generosity and compassion and love, that's when we're at our best. And I think you as powerful people, we are at our best when we use our power for something other than positional authority, other than something to our own ends. I think Paul's words in Galatians 5 have a lot to teach us on this. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. I, I think we have the freedom to use power, especially as sons and daughters of God. I don't think God eschews all power, but I think using power to indulge ourselves or to lord it over people or in an authoritarian way or in a positional way, I think is choosing to do it to indulge our flesh. Instead, Paul cautions us, calls us, to use our freedom, use our power to serve one another in love. I think that's what we see Jesus do. Surely Jesus is not scared of power. He still has all the power. Yet Jesus, being who he was, chose not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He accomplished God's will, not by wearing the power identity, but by wearing the serving, loving, giving, investing, by being a son of the heavenly father. You and I, we have that same choice. And your real ID is that you are a beloved child, a beloved son or daughter of the heavenly father. And we've been saying it loud. And so say it loud one more time this morning. I am who the I am says I am. Father, break us for the times we're tempted to make a deal. Give us eyes to see the moments where the deal is so good because the power, the means, the ends is so good that we think it can justify the means, sanctify the means. Give us eyes to see those moments and give us courage to be people who don't wear power as an identity. 
but who clearly follow the example of Jesus. And we follow your will to accomplish your ways. Seal in our hearts that we are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Remember, church, we are all new, all in, and all out. Now you go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington World. Have a blessed week. We'll see you back next Sunday. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org.